So tonight I'm going to be picking up a series of talks that I began last spring. There's been a little bit of a gap here, um, but all of these, there's three left in the series. It's a series on the paramis, and um, each one of them really is a standalone talk. Uh, Tonight I will just begin by saying a little bit about the paramis, which Patricia actually uh, ran through the list in her last talk. Um, these are qualities which get strengthened as we practice. And I think they're very helpful to become aware of because oftentimes we're so focused on mindfulness and um, the desire to be mindful that we might fail to see what it is that supports mindfulness. And these qualities all help support the mind in awakening. They're actually called the requisites for enlightenment. And um, they're qualities that the Buddha exemplified in the way he lived his life, from you know, his ceaseless generosity of sharing the teachings, his infinite patience in working with uh, people on their journeys, the compassion he exhibited, you know, a compassion that could hold a mass murderer. It could hold, you know, people just broken by grief. And, you know, he could encourage and inspire these beings to awaken. And, you know, the power of his uh, loving kindness, which was said to be so strong that wild animals were tamed by it. So the qualities that they are in the paramis are really qualities that you know, the Buddha didn't often so directly speak about, but they were what he set in, by, by being a living example of an, an expression of the awakened mind when they're really brought to full fruition. I often think of the paramis as being something like a stage crew where you don't notice them so much. And there they are setting the stage, being the support for the production to be given. And, you know, in the same way, these paramis often work. And we really see them during the course of a long retreat. Um, tonight I'll be speaking about resolve, determination, and you know that's really the backbone of the practice that we do here. If we didn't have any determination, you know, as soon as we come and see, face difficulties, we'd probably leave. Um, you know, we come and we practice renunciation just in coming here that there's a simplification, a letting go of you know, the level of sense pleasure that we might be used to in our lives. Um, we practice virtue in being here um, by you know, really living in a way that engenders harmony. So I'd like to just go through in brief a few uh, of the paramis that I won't be hitting in full. So um, generosity. Patricia spoke about this in her last talk. You know, this is the first of the ten paramis. And it's where we have the capacity to open our hearts and give out of concern for the welfare of others. It's a benevolence of heart that is not 
self-referencing. Through generosity, we learn the wisdom of letting go, the power of non-attachment, as we learn to give that which is most dear to us. The second of the paramis is that of virtue, sometimes called ethical conduct or the training in sila. And this is the way in which we take care with our words and actions. We let our whole life become our spiritual practice. We dedicate our lives to living a life of non-harming, creating harmony through our words and actions. We find the harmony comes both in our inner repoise, our inner sense of stature, and harmony in the outer world, where people feel more at ease in our presence, knowing that we're not about to attack or harm another being. The next of the paramis is that of renunciation. It's a quality of mind that inclines the mind towards liberation through helping us to relinquish, let go of clutter, distraction, to live simply. It helps us to discover that which is important and meaningful in our lives. In the awakened mind, it's said that renunciation is an expression of the awakened mind, where there's the wisdom that knows there is nothing to hang on to. And renunciation simply becomes a way of life. The next of the paramis is that of wisdom, seeing clearly seeing things as they are. When wisdom is a parami, it's really done because this is what helps to benefit all beings. We incline our minds towards wisdom so that the very living of our life can help others. The next of the paramis is that of energy, It's the vital force that's needed to apply ourselves on the journey of awakening. The momentum that carries us through to apply, to do the practice, to make the effort. Effort needs to be guided by right view, a view that is in accordance with the way things are, and right intention, an intention that is wholesome, helpful, that is that movement of the heart to alleviate suffering. The next of the paramis is that of patience, the capacity to endure that which is both desirable and undesirable with an open heart, where we learn a radical acceptance to be 
with that which is difficult, where we're not pushing the process, not trying to create, manufacture, but surrendering to the way things are and trusting in the process. Patience can actually bring a timelessness to the spiritual journey. The next of the paramis is that of truthfulness, honesty, living in a way where we align with truth. You know, it's taking a stand against delusion. We express this truthfulness in our speech. Being honest with others leads to a greater trust, harmony, and working with truthfulness within our own minds. Being able to be honest with our experience, what's arising. This honesty can actually be a great relief because we're not dodging, not being cunning. It's very straightforward posture of nobility. So in the coming few weeks, tonight, talking about resolve, and then moving on to the last two will be loving kindness and equanimity. So resolve, sometimes called determination. As I mentioned, it's something that we really uh, touch into during the course of a retreat. I have this habit of naming some retreats that I do, you know, just by the at the end of the retreat, looking at what a theme was in during the course of a retreat. And I had one retreat where I, I named it Resolve of the Heart. You know, it was where this quality really started to come forth. And, you know, it's easy to think of resolve and think of a willful determination, Amazon woman, you know, where effort was just effortless and, you know, just striding through the day. But actually, the retreat that I named, Resolve of the Heart, was one where sleepiness was predominant. It was actually practicing here at the Forest Refuge. Um, There was a teacher's retreat that opened the retreat center. And um, for whatever reasons, when I sat a lot, I fell asleep. Or there was just bobbing and weaving. And, you know, sometimes it got strong enough that it would startle my neighbors. (laughs) Um, And what was interesting was, you know, given my uh, tendencies of mind, I could have judged myself very harshly for it. And, you know, especially here I sat amongst my peers and, you know, it was there for all to see just how tired I was, how much sleepiness there was. But there was a strong interest in what was happening. You know, just this sense of, okay, this is what I have to work with. I don't know why it's here, but this is what's here. And so, you know, sometimes it meant skillful means where, you know, where I might have to get up and walk or sit with my eyes open, you know, do some of the things we've spoken about. Um, Sometimes just a sense of, you know, I come in, uh, I tended to have one sitting towards the end of the day where there would be a lot of sleepiness. But I would just say, okay, I'm going to sit through this. And I would sit and it would pass. 
And it would, you know, turn into really bright awareness. And so I used to like to sit beyond where the sleepiness got really heavy. And, you know, I didn't, I continued to get up early in the morning. I would sit late into the evening and I would just do it regardless of the sleepiness being there. Of course, you know, if I really felt like it was so heavy, dense, that's when I used skillful means. But it was, for me, just the seeing, this resolve, this determination to look, to see, to understand. And knowing that what comes is what we can use to wake up. I had also seen this on an earlier retreat. It was the very first retreat that I sat with a Burmese teacher, Sayadaw Upandita. I think I may have mentioned a little bit of this story uh, a few weeks ago. But you know, I, w- I went to this retreat, and I really wasn't sure it was the right practice for me. A lot of doubt came up in the very beginning. Uh, I almost left the retreat, and then he just introduced the fact that I could... Tr- uh, treat it as a scientific experiment. And so that, again, brought in this willingness to look. It was rubbing against ideas I had about what meditation was, but there was this willingness to look, this you know, real sense of resolve to be free, to be liberated, that could help me through difficulties. And that retreat, too, I found I got up first thing in the morning, and stayed up late at night. And it was not an easy time. But this, this sense of resolve, determination, kept me keeping in mind that you know, I was here to explore, to explore the terrain of the mind, and it included all that was arising. Actually, I'm right now reading a book. It's the autobiography of Master Shen Yen. Uh, he is a Chinese Buddhist monk. He's still alive. And the story is quite phenomenal. I'm, I'm really only up to his midlife. But I could see. He, you know, he was born as into a poor family, uh, hard conditions, um, not very well educated. And then at some point, when he was 13 years old, there was a proposition of marriage to uh, some young girl that, you know, when he thought of it, it wasn't very enticing. And then in that same conversation, the prospect of becoming a monk came up. And although he didn't really know what that life meant, he jumped at the opportunity. And so he went off, and he was a monk. And, you know, the conditions for the monk in China at that time were very hard. Um, but he had, he had just a natural sense of ethical conduct. You know, his sila seemed to be strong right from when he was a child. And uh, he really had a, a desire to learn Um, And so he was a monk for a number of years. And at one point, 
when conditions got hard where he was, he went to Shanghai, and then there became uh, the communists were moving in, and um, they were threatening the monks, and the monks, you know, were, ca- were causing many of them to disrobe, and that he learned that if he became entered the military with, with the nationalists, he could go to Taiwan. And so he chose to do that. And he went to Taiwan, and it wasn't like it was an active military that, you know, in his whole um, re- regime, or whatever, they, whatever they're called, grouping uh, of these military officers. They only had two guns amongst them. And, you know, he said that if the, the communists ever invaded, they were really going to be in trouble because they you know, wouldn't really know what to do and just had no way to protect themselves. But he, because he also had, didn't have very good health and, you know, a lot from the poor nutrition when he was young, um, he got, was given a job in intelligence. And it was evident in the years, it, I think he was nine years in the military, even though he was in military uniform, military officer, the stories that he tell, tells are that he was really a monk at heart through all that time. And then that actually became recognized by someone who had some degree of power and could get him out of the military and back to being a monk. And then his life as a monk was not easy. But, you know, I was just, as I was reading it, it was this resolve, this determination for truth, for understanding, that, again, kept him on track, you know, from being a monk, letting go of the robes, taking up a whole different way of life, but yet there was something he was staying true to that he wasn't wavering in. And this is the steadfastness that that's resolve or determination brings. I'm sure each of us has our own stories of how we encounter this determination. You know, from waking up in the morning and being sleepy, and then you find yourself getting up anyway. And, you know, maybe sitting, having a cup of tea after a meal and thinking, oh, another cup of tea, oh, that would be really nice. And then the next thing you know, you're walking back to the meditation hall. You know, you just find there's this energy there that is very steady. It's not kicking up a fuss, but it keeps you going. And it's very powerful to be in touch with it. It's a resolve or determination that can take us right through to realizing the full potential of being a human being. Resolve is supported by faith, by the sense of possibility that we have tasted. If we hadn't tasted it, we wouldn't be here. And, you know, sometimes just remembering that sense of possibility, that whisper of freedom that we have encountered, or that there's just some felt sense of. 
A piece about resolve or determination is that willingness to begin again, no matter how far astray we have gone. And in our lives, you know, the course of our lives, we get off track at times. We get lost in sense pleasure, in just going to have a good time, you know, be living a life where we just, it's based on whims and fancies. And then suddenly we remember this sense of possibility. Suddenly we remember something of, you know, our deepest vow, aspiration to awaken. And if we can learn in those moments to simply begin again, to not just get caught in self-judgment, you idiot, look how long you've been lost, but rather just pick it up right there. That steadfastness starts to take hold. And, you know, really simple training is we're with the breath, get lost, we simply begin again. You know, just pick it up right there. And we just do that over and over and over again. Our resolve, determination, it's strengthening. In a certain sense, it's just, just do it. You know, just do the practice. Just be mindful. I remember being in Burma with Sayada Utejaniya, and he was one day talking to a, a group of young people, uh, young practitioners, new to practice, very excited about practice, and yet at the same time, just seeing how challenging it can be, how you know, we get lost so many times. And, and, you know, one of them was starting to, you know, get take on that um, kind of cringy sound of voice, whiny, oh, it's so hard, it's so hard. <laughs> and then he had the, the little uh, Nike symbol on his desk, which, you know, it, it stands for just do it. So he just thumps it over and says, just do it. <laughs> and that's what resolve can help us to do. You know, cut the crap. Get on with it. Turn up. This is what it's about. It's very much like riding a bucking bronco. It throws you off. You get back on. Get back on the horse. And it doesn't matter. Yeah, we get bruised. We get hurt. Um, You know, because, you know, we've basically been thrown by the power of delusion. But in that moment, when we recognize, we wake up, we begin again. It's a moment to rejoice in. It's said that resolve is strengthened through the habit of persevering. Just that willingness. Keep going, keep looking, keep seeing. And this is said to be strengthened through the seeing clearly into the cause of suffering. It's like in these moments where delusion takes hold, we're lost. In the moment that we recognize this, it's a moment where we can see 
that something of the cause of suffering. You know, seeing how the identification, the grasping, the holding on to anything can create suffering. And, you know, as we see this, as we begin to really see that we don't have to do this, we don't have to keep hanging on to experience, we don't have to keep trying to create things in the world, we don't have to keep becoming, as we really see the pain of that, the determination to let go, to really know the mind that is free, it strengthens. We know the pain of being caught in delusion. We probably also are aware of the pain when resolve is not strong, when we feel wishy-washy, you know, where there isn't a strong sense of direction. I remember someone once saying to me, describing themselves as being like a jellyfish. And when they said it, I just had such compassion. You know, where when we just continually give in to the force of desire, and it feels so overwhelming, how hard life becomes, how unmanageable life feels. In my own life, I've had a strong fear of, you know, just getting lost in the pleasures of everyday life and then finding myself on my deathbed and discovering that I'd never really lived. I'd like to share a poem from a Buddhist nun named Rangetsu. Um, She was said to have had such a strong sense of impermanence that she lived her life carrying all of her belongings in a little box. I've always found this poem very potent. You know, it's a very simple poem. It's called, On Seeing Young Nuns on Their Begging Rounds. First steps on the long path to truth. Please do not dream your lives away. Walk on to the end. The fear of dreaming our lives away, being lost in delusion. Sitting on retreat sometimes when that fear has been there, I've started to imagine that I'll live the rest of my life in retreat or I'll find a cave in Tibet to go to uh, or that, you know, I'll live a really altruistic life of of feeding the homeless yeah, feeding the homeless or caring for the dying. But I, I think that what's really being called for is to just wholeheartedly engage in this life, to wholeheartedly engage in the process of awakening, 
of in exploring, investigating what it is to be a human being and having the sense of the potential. So this power of resolve, determination, we have to watch because when it gets mixed up with willfulness, it can become a very brutal force. You know, I've seen this in my own experience. (laughs) Actually, I once lived in a spiritual community and work was the practice. And we worked very long hours in the day. And a sense of self became identified with this. And I had, you know, I've always in my life had a strong, willful energy. And, you know, this got mixed up with the unwholesome. And I worked myself into the ground. And I was actually became nicknamed Deva Slava. <laughs> Uh, it was where I, 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 you know, I actually ended up with chronic fatigue from the experience, and you know, just saw how that that the this determination has to be supported by wisdom, has to be supported by that which is skillful, with wise discernment, able to see that which is wholesome, helpful. I'd actually like to share a teaching from a Tibetan teacher named Toku Urjan Rinpoche. He has a book called Vajra Speech, and he speaks about uh, resolve, determination. He's calling it diligence. The diligence of practice is said to be like the string of a bow. First, the string is slack, but when the bow is strung, the string stays continually taut. Diligence should be like a river flowing downwards, unceasing, and unforced. It does not help to be tense or forceful, which is only necessary when carrying a load. The difference between Buddhas and sentient beings is diligence. If you are very diligent, you can become a Buddha. If you're not, you remain a sentient being. I really appreciate the description, like a river flowing downwards, unceasing and unforced. No, it isn't tension that is this determination. It's an inclination of heart and following through, staying with. I experience it as a calm steadiness that's gentle but firm, a full-heartedness. I'd like to take a look at what the Buddha once said about resolve or determination. And I wanted to share a story about this sutta. Uh, I'm only going to be sharing a small part of the sutta, but it comes from a discourse that the Buddha gave on the elements. And 
it was said that one time the Buddha was out um, venturing out into the countryside. It came nighttime, and he was seeking shelter, and he went to a potter's home. He was told that he could stay in the shed of the potters, but there, there was already a monk there, and so he would have to share the shed with the monk. So he went in and he met the monk, Venerable Pukasati. Venerable Pukasati had gone forth from the homeless life, uh, was living the teachings of the Buddha, and yet he'd never met the Buddha. And it's said that Venerable Pukasara, Pukasati, I think, hang on, Hmm. Pukasati, excuse me, had been once a king, and he had been friend of King Bimbasara, who was a devotee of the Buddha. And King Bimbasara once gave his friend a a golden plate which had been inscribed with a description of the triple gems and had some other teachings on it. And so Pukasati, in receiving this, had become so inspired that he had decided to renounce being a king, to shave his head, and to go forth into the homeless life. And so he had gone out to try to find the Buddha. And so here the Buddha arrives in the same shed as him, although Pukasati at first did not recognize the Buddha as the Buddha and spent the night seated in meditation. And during this night, the Buddha observed Pukasati and described him as one who conducts himself in a way that inspires confidence. The Buddha recognized the faith and devotion of this monk. And so he decided to teach him the Dharma. And he was going to do so by asking, asking him some questions. So he, some of the questions that he asked were who his teacher was, where his teacher lived, and if he ever met his teacher, would he recognize him? <laughs> At some point, Venerable Pukasati did realize who the Buddha was and actually ended up apologizing to the Buddha for having referred to him as my friend. Um, a part of the story is that uh, Venerable Pukasati asked the Buddha to ordain him. And the Buddha said he would, but that Venerable Pukasati needed to go out and to get some robes and a bowl. And it's said that when he was out doing that, a stray cow killed him. But the good part of the story is that he had listened very well to the Buddha, and the Buddha said that he had actually attained the third stage of enlightenment. So anyhow... I, I kind of love the stories from the time of the Buddha, so I just wanted to share that. Um, now, for the short teaching, <laughs> much shorter than the story. Uh, so the Buddha says, A person has four resolves. These are the four resolves. The resolve for discernment, or wisdom. The resolve for truth. The resolve for relinquishment. And the resolve for calm or peace. 
I'd like to go through each of these resolves. And we can, in hearing, I think you'll recognize just how important they are in our practice and how supported they are by the work that we're doing here. So the resolve for discernment or wisdom. Being able to discern right view from wrong view. Right view being that which is in alignment with truth, that which is helpful, skillful, useful, leads to the end of suffering. Wrong view being that which is based in delusion, that perpetuates Greed, aversion, delusion. The Vipassana or insight meditation is a very direct way of strengthening this quality of discernment where we work with mindfulness, effort, concentration to be able to see things as they are. The quality of investigation comes in and has this discerning quality. You can recognize what is. Our practice moves from living a life based on concepts, stories, to a direct experience of what is. A direct experience where it's not filtered through our beliefs, ideas, views. There's really no substitute for direct experience. And, you know, it's really simple. It's it's like on one level, you know, just something like the eating of a strawberry. Somebody could tell us about it. We could fantasize about it, hear about it. But there's no substitute for the tasting of that strawberry. And there's no substitute for having the direct experience of truth, the way things are. And, you know, this happens naturally as we let go of this level of concept, ideas, beliefs, and really touch into momentary truth what's happening here and now, when we're not caught on the level of, say, anger as a concept of anger, which even in our practice we find we often do, but that we go, we touch the actual experience of anger and know it in its nature. This wise discernment it's like turning the lights on in the mind. You know, it's very similar to, you know, for walking through the dark, you know, the woods here at night, and we can't see clearly, the lights dim, you know, that we get fearful images. You know, a branch becomes a snake, uh, a rock becomes a bear, you know, that just that the mind does all kinds of things when it doesn't see clearly. And yet, walk through that same path in the daytime where everything is illuminated, there's no fear. And so, this 
quality of discernment, turning the lights on in the mind, helps us to dispel ignorance. Working with the resolve for discernment or wisdom. When we come on retreat, we get challenged because it's not very often that a retreat unfolds according to our expectations. No, it just doesn't seem to happen that way. And so we meet the challenges, the difficulties, things not being how we like, you know, both in the external world, the internal world. We hit, hit our habits of laziness, apathy. Um, at times, things feel unbearable. And yet, we work with this resolve for discernment, to see clearly, to know this experience too. This too can be included, whatever it is. I think I mentioned over and over again about continuity. But this is, you know, when I found myself floundering in retreat, continuity was what really helped to bring the steadiness. And with that, having to give up the preference for what one is mindful of, you know, because we just can't choose our experiences, but being mindful of what is occurring. And so, you know, just throughout that day, that willingness, that resolve of heart to be present to this experience, moment by moment, breath by breath, step by step. We can strengthen the resolve by giving voice to it at the beginning of a sitting. It helps us to remember why we're doing this practice. We might say something like, May I see things just as they are. Or may I be steady in my efforts to be mindful of arising appearances. It's to, you know, to kind of to set that, that stake of resolution, determination, and then surrendering to the unfolding Not settling for borrowed knowledge, but really having that resolve to know for ourselves. Not settling for book knowledge, but looking to our own direct experience. We can see this power of resolve when we notice at the beginning of a sitting or you know when we're actually sitting and there's a strong sense of faith determination the effort or energy is there and then the times when we sit when you know maybe it's towards the end of a day and feeling like the energy's draining out and you're really just sitting till you feel like you can go to bed without feeling guilty 
you know, <laughs> there's a complacency that's there. Um, or, you know, you get to a certain point in the retreat, you feel like you've worked really hard, but then, ah, you know, I only have another day or two left. You know, I'll just take it easy. And there's not that same sense of resolve. And, you know, just noticing the different way it impacts us. We really begin to see the importance of this quality of resolve. And, you know, this resolve for discernment or wisdom, it's really not limited to our life on the cushion, our life in intensive retreat. If we bring it forth in our day-to-day living, it helps us to live a meaningful life. It helps us to make wise decisions and to chart the course of our lives. <coughs> Excuse me. The second of the resolves, the resolve for truth. This has been a driving energy in my own life. You know, as a child, that was the word that resonated with me, to know the truth. And, you know, this resolve can um, help us to be steady when the, the medicine's bitter, you know, when we might not be seeing things that we really like. Uh, that are not flattering. But we know that there's something in the honoring of this momentary truth. This truthfulness that, you know, when we bring into our lives, it helps us to live with upright, you know, a, a sense of integrity. where we really let whatever we're saying come into alignment with that truth. I know in our culture, we often get kind of caught up in the idea of speaking our personal truth, but I don't think that's what the truth is about because our personal truth can really be a view or opinion. And, you know, it's, but it's that willingness to look beneath the surface and to honor what we see. And, you know, many times it, it feels challenging to honor that, where it might, might seem easier to shy away from it. You know, sometimes we make changes in our lives when we've seen that we're not honoring something within And it might be a radical step at times. And it might be scary. But when we see that there there is an honoring of truth in the doing of this, that this is bringing us into alignment with our deepest vows, we find the capacity to move forward, to do it. The Buddha was said to have, in previous lives, before he was a Buddha, had an unshakable commitment to speaking truth, to not knowingly lie. 
And that's something that's easy for us to work with in our lives. Easy to have the intention. Sometimes the, the actual living of it is harder because we can, you know, in a, just in a quick moment, say something that might not quite be true, either to bolster ourselves up, the image of ourselves, to make ourselves look better, to get something we want. But ah, to have this intention to speak that which is truthful, it, it can be something to really work with in our lives. And I think I spoke not long ago in a morning reflection about just developing honesty in our practice. This helps to bring forth this truthfulness in our lives. The next of the resolves is the resolve for relinquishment. The letting go of attachment, the sense of ownership, becoming, or identification. In a sense, we relinquish that which is not serving us, that which leads to suffering. You know, it can be uh, the endless pursuit of sense pleasure. It can be the relinquishment of thoughts that torment us, of uh, mind states that uh, besiege us. We train in letting go, not staying identified. On the deepest level, there's a relinquishment of the small sense of a, uh, uh, the sense of a small separate self. And I'd like to share a teaching from um, a Thai monk, Ajahn Buddhadasa. He says, to understand Dhamma sufficiently is the first step, but understanding it is not the end. We now see that as the mind begins to let go, to loosen up its attachments, these attachments dissolve away. We experience this until the point where attachment is extinguished. Once attachment is quenched, the final step is to experience that the mind is free. Everything is free. The polytexts use the phrase, throwing back. The Buddha said that at the end, we throw everything back. That means that we have been thieves all of our lives by appropriating the things of nature as I and mine. We have been stupid and suffered for it. Now we have become wise and are able to give things up. At the last step of practice, we realize, oh, it isn't mine. It belongs to nature. We throw everything back to nature and never again steal anything. To learn the secret of Dhamma is to know that we should be attached to nothing whatsoever and then never again to become attached to anything. All is liberated. The case is closed. We are finished. May we be finished. <laughs> I love the image of throwing it all back and you know, just being thieves and having you know, taken ownership of all of these experiences, activities, and giving it back. You know, putting down the burden, relinquishment.
The last of these four resolves is the resolve for calm or peace. This is really what supports the realization of the strengthening of the other three forms of resolve because it comes from the training of the mind that we're doing here. That we are training the mind, which is so used to you know, habits of this and that, jumping, deception, you know, uh, being lost in delusion. We're training it in calm. You know, at first, we might strengthen calm through concentration, through a steadfastness of mind, steadiness, stability of mind, through practicing non-distraction. You know, we work very diligently, whether it's being with the breath. Uh, you know, at the beginning of a retreat tends to be that we'll use one object of mindfulness and return to over and over again as a means of strengthening concentration, uh, finding stability of mind. And then at some point we turn to more momentary concentration, which includes the changing aspects of experience. And then there comes a calm and a peace that is from wisdom, is from the mind of non-reactivity, of equanimity. There's a great stability that is present. We can see clearly and are unperturbed, not thrown by what is seen, what is known. The Buddha also summarized these four resolves by saying that one should not be negligent of discernment, should guard the truth, be devoted to relinquishment, and train only for calm. The not negligent, (laughs) I seem to have trouble with that word tonight, of uh, discernment, this is the cultivation of mindfulness, a mindfulness that you know, brings a spaciousness and steadiness and that can discern, that can hear the voice of wisdom. Now, when we live lost in delusion, not clearly seen, we lose that intuitive sense of what's skillful, what's helpful. But we find as our practice strengthens that wisdom really comes forth. There is, you know, this intuitive knowing. Ah, yeah, no, this can be let go of. It's not helpful. So be not negligent of discernment. Strengthening mindfulness. The guarding of truth. No, recognizing the power, the helpfulness and the integrity that we can stand upon when we align with truth, seeing its value, being devoted to relinquishment, that willingness to let go, to be empty-handed, to be so empty that the river of life moves through us. It's the path of simplification. Just, 
you know, for me, it's been the seeing that what gets surrendered, what gets let go of, is that which is no longer serving us. And the training only for calm or peace. This coming back to non-distractedness, a full-hearted presence here and now. Finding a stability of mind that can discern. And the Buddha once said, the tides of conceiving do not sweep over one who stands upon these foundations. When the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over one, they are called a sage at peace. So I'd just like to close tonight with the poem that I wrote at the end of my retreat called Resolve of the Heart. It's called Resolve of the Heart. Seeing the face of fear, I quiver and I quake. I become so small, two steps backwards, and still I walk on. The torment of the judging mind, you or me, it's the thought that divides. There is so much disdain, and still I walk on. Laziness prevails. It clouds my visions. Sometimes I think that my bed is nibbana, and still I walk on. The unending sleepiness that defies impermanence, the bashing from its waves, foggy, heavy, oppressive, and still I walk on. Guilt, self-hatred, they are friends that gang up, that lacerate and pierce, and I'm left in the muck, and still I walk on. Walk on, walk on. It's that whisper in my ear. It's that longing in my heart. It's that shiver of unspeakable peace. And so I walk on. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings find this resolve of the heart to walk on to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. So closing with the chanting of the sharing of blessings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.